Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 272. And it's been a while, <laughs> and I'm sorry for that. But I'm back on the road. I'm in Ireland right now. I am in a town city called Killarney in the western, southwestern part of Ireland. And it is incredibly beautiful here. We drove the Ring of Kerry which is just like really lush and green and coastal. We hiked at Killarney National Park. It's really intense hike up these steep step rocks. Uh, it's just like the mountain is just breathing around you. It's just constantly misting. You can see off in the horizon, in the foreground, like the rain coming to you <laughs> because it rains a lot here and it's like a force. It's like it's like this just gray sheet that you see coming before it, before it hits you. It's really amazing. Uh, we went to the Kerry Cliffs, just this like real cold looking blue turquoise color as it hits the rocks. Incredible wind when you're, when you're out at the overlook over, over the cliffs. It, the, windiest, <laughs> the windiest I've ever felt. Like you feel like you're about to just get blown off the cliffs. We had uh, pints of Guinness, of course, in a pub. Seafood chowder. I want to say thanks to Julie from O'Donohue who brought us, or who brought me the scotch egg, even though it was long past the time on the menu when they were going to be making it. Man, there's 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 free roaming cows everywhere. There's sheep everywhere. Just really, really peaceful and beautiful. Flew into Dublin. Well, actually, flew into Portugal. Had a day layover there. So what do you do? You go get sardines because they do sardines really well. Spent the day there. Then flew into Dublin. Got in really late. So we slept on the floor in the airport overnight. Then we got to Dublin just as like a launching point. And we'll get back to Dublin. But we went to Rathvilly, to Kilkenny, to where we are in Killarney now. And we're going to be going to Galway and then back to Dublin. I know at least I will have one other episode from Ireland. But then we're also moving on. It's the summer. We're traveling all summer. We're going to go to Croatia and make our way up through some countries by bus to Berlin uh, to see my partner's friend Sarah. So I'm happy. <laughs> I'm always happy when I'm on the road. And I have your first episode ready for you. I recorded with a woman named Amantha Murphy. We recorded in her home. Like I said, it's very rainy here, so it was amazing to have a space. But her very peaceful home, which looks out over like a mountain scene, again, with that encroaching rain, encroaching mist that you see here, before it hits you, it's really incredible. And she had even said something to me when I reached out to her like a month ago about the weather. And I was like, how, does she, how is she going to know what the weather is? But I think she's in tune with that sort of thing because she's a, what's known as a shavan or a shamanic teacher and healer living here in Killarney. And she's, she's connected to, 
to the spirits of the land and to a wisdom and a knowledge that predates the times that we're living in now. And she helps people to, to recenter and to reconnect with that world. And she even says, you know, having a knowledge of the way helps you move in between worlds. So I was really interested in this and interested in its connection to modern beliefs in Ireland uh, about deities and mythology. It is very strong here. She points out how in, in the cities it's not as strong. It's, it's stronger in rural areas, which makes sense. It's like that in many places around the world. But there's a deep pride and knowledge here in the past, in being Irish, in connections to Celtic roots and the people who, who predate that. And there's also, I've, I've just found like a lot of people really politically minded and aware. It's a country that's progressing and progressing rapidly. It's very clean. Things are efficient. Uh, things aren't very expensive. People are kind on the roads. The roads are crazy because they're all so narrow. And when you drive the Ring of Kerry, part of it, you can't even get two cars down it, you know, going in opposite directions. And this is the first time in my life, actually, despite all my travels, that I've driven on the left-hand side of the road. And I've primarily been doing the driving. So, yeah, uh, it's it's strange having no depth perception on that side of the car. Uh, and it's wild. Like you're driving along cliffs, along walls, tight spaces with sometimes a van's passing or, you know, uh, tractor trailer. It's fun. It's, I don't know. It's part of the adventure. Maybe it sounds silly and, and not so adventurous, but that's been cool for me. So yeah, this is really uh, an interesting conversation. And I want to say thanks to Amantha again. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Have you done a podcast before? I've done podcast. Uh, no, I've done um, interviews like for summits, but that's through. Um, <laughs> that's through Zoom. Ah, uh, yeah. And so you know we're on Zoom together, and they are recording it, and then it goes on to the summit. Mm. Do you, have you done? Um, and I should preface this by saying, I know very little about the topics that you're going to be talking about. So if, if I use incorrect terminology, uh, I apologize for the ignorance. Um, because the word that's coming to mind again is reading. And I was going to say, have, do you do readings over Zoom as well? But uh, do you do healing over, over readings? I do. I do shamanic healings over Zoom. So I started... Do you want me to... Are we recording this? Yeah, sure. Oh, okay. So I started my work um, around the age of 20. Mm. So 50 years ago. And um, I started by doing clairvoyance. I grew up seeing spirit and, um, and coming here every year. The old house was here, my granny's house. My granny lived in the old house. My mother grew up here. So down the hill here, are, most of them are relatives, cousins and children of cousins, you know. And, um, and so I used to go into the fields and play with the fairies and that sort of thing. And my grandmother was the local midwife and healer in the area. Mm. And she'd see them. 
and she'd see them in and she'd see them out and often they would visit her on their way out so she would know when somebody had passed over you know mm. and um and then when I was 12 I had an eye operation for double vision I was born with double vision and I stopped seeing spirit Whoa. and for the first time I started integrating into life as we know it before that I was very shy very quiet didn't have friends because I couldn't understand why everybody was so asleep and it was a bit scary it was scary I was gonna ask that yeah yeah it was what was very scary and I'm dyslexic and in the early 50s they didn't know about dyslexia and so I couldn't read properly. I couldn't learn. I still can't learn from a book. Um, I couldn't write properly. My writing is still bad. But mathematics was my subject. Mm. So I actually got my first prize at five for good mental work. And I was the top of the class all the way through school for mathematics. And, of course, some teachers just didn't understand that. So I was beaten for it, you know. Whoa. Because they thought, well, and of course, if you if you had that intelligence as a child, you'd pretend to not to be able to do maths as well. But I was so proud that I was good at maths because I just couldn't do the other subjects, you know. Um, but it was, it was very difficult. So that made me more insular, mm. you know. And um, so when I was 12, I had the eye operation and I started, like I said, started integrating into life, really, and making friends. And I had a very good friend, Kathleen O'Shea, who I felt would protect me because um, every time I had an image, it would be of myself growing inside a bush and the bush was protecting me from everything outside. Mm. And so I felt Kathleen was, she was strong and she would say what she wanted, you know. And I'd like, oh, Kathleen will save me, you know. <laughs> and, um, and then when I was 16... We got a maths teacher in the convent school, which we were all so excited about, getting a man in a convent school, you know. And bless him, he was an amazing teacher, but he didn't have looks. And he was the only teacher that ever, ever inspired me, ever gave me work that I could do just for mm. me, because normally I'd end up sitting next to girls who couldn't do mathematics and I'd have to be helping them. And, um, and one Friday evening, he gave myself and Eileen Hurley um, some homework to do, specifically for the two of us, because we're both good, you know. And it was three lots of three dots. And we had to put a line through all the dots without crossing a line. So the nine dots looked like a box, looked like a square. And we had to join them all together without crossing a line. And I worked on this all weekend because I love maths. I actually really enjoyed it. And I came back on the Monday and we had mathematics and I went in and I looked at him and he's a very tall guy. And I said to him, it can't be done. And he just looked down at me and smiled and I found myself irritated. And I said, it can't be done. And he just smiled again. And I said, the only way you can do it is to go outside of the box. And he said to me, no one ever told you you had to stay inside the box. Mm. And I stood there and I could just feel everything changing. And it was almost like the feeling was like I'd been swimming underwater for so long, I'd forgotten that I was underwater. And the feeling was like breaking water. And within days, spirit was back and I was talking to spirit again. I was going to ask you because we work with... Uh, students with learning disabilities yes. and we do work with some kids who have you know severe dyslexia and often in other areas they're incredibly strong at something and it's almost like a balance between because you have a deficiency in one area 
uh, I don't know, some type of a natural balance that you're going to be really strong at acting or could be math or something else. Do you think that somehow your dyslexia is tied to like your clairvoyancy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I remember, oh gosh, about 30 years ago, somebody coming up to me in an alternative health exhibition and she said to me, um, she was talking about different things. And I said, I'm, I'm just, I knew by that point because of my children, I'm dyslexic. And she said, oh, we can fix that. We can heal you. And I said to her, there's nothing wrong with me. Mm. I just think differently. Yeah. And dyslexia for me, you see, I see in pictures. I don't oh. see in words. So if you said to me, how to spell horse? How do you spell horse? I see a horse in my mind's mm. eye but I don't see the word. I see the picture. And so receiving pictures is much more natural to me. And if somebody's trying to explain something to me, something I've learned over the years is that I need to see what they're saying more than hear what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And if they don't know what they're saying, quite often I can't see what they're saying. That makes sense. So I'm picking up on that energy. My four children are dyslexic and two of my four grandchildren are dyslexic. So do they then also, again, I'm just like for, for a lack of correct terminology and I'll, I'll kind of follow your lead as we start talking, but um, do they also have healing abilities and clairvoyancy? In their own way they do mm. and they've chosen to use it in different ways. Ah. So like my eldest daughter now has worked for child protection for 18 years. She did psychology. And um, and now she's ju- she just finished a master's in attachment theory. And so she's using these gifts in that way. My second daughter, who is an actress, so, f- so much an actress, you know, but she actually went into nursing. So she's a specialist nurse, hmm. but she's also an actress. And she's an amazing actress, you know. And she chose to go into nursing because she was a single parent. And she wanted to make sure that she had an income. You know, and and, uh, acting is a very hard profession for that. And then my third daughter um, also did psychology and works with uh, teenagers and um, is also doing another master's at the same time at the moment. And then my fourth, my son, um, he produces music and writes music. And, yeah, so they're all very creative in their own ways. And... um, and then my, my eldest granddaughter also did psychology. She's working actually in Denver now, in Colorado. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, because she was born in America, so she went back to America. There's some things I want to unpack that you mentioned. Um, okay. You talked about your grandmother. Yes. Uh, how much of a tradition of healing was there here in Ireland? And wasn't there a time when it was almost seen as like like witchery and was persecuted by a very uh, religious nation and culture. Yes and no. Okay. Yes and no, in that it's part of the psyche of the people here. And um, it would be more frowned upon in places like Dublin. We're very out of the way here in the south, in the southwest, and also up in the northwest around Donegal, you know, and uh, coming down to Leitrim, Sligo. It's always been part of the tradition. You know, most, I always say, you scratch an Irish Catholic and you'll get a pagan. Yeah, I mean, scratch a, a Catholic anywhere and it's rooted in paganism, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that's still strong. 
that's still strong. And people, I feel, are more open to it. And now that Catholicism is not filling a gap here, that mm. people are waking up to the reality of it all, a lot of people are actually moving again into the older knowledge and the older ways of communing. You know, we have a saying in Ireland, the wheel turns. And the wheel is turning again. What do you think the reason for that is? Because people are waking up. They're becoming conscious. You know, they had a belief. They fought for hundreds of years, you know, to keep Catholicism, to hold their religion. People were killed mm. for being Catholic. People were thrown out of their homes for being Catholic. And in a lot of the uh, battles, the priests would be fighting with the people. You know, they were part of that. And it all changed when Ireland became a union. And for me personally, how I see it is that the Vatican saw it as a way of making us a Roman Catholic country. And de Valera, who became the first president, actually invited them in. And so the cardinals, the bishops, had a very strong say in the way Catholicism was going to develop and mature in Ireland. So my granny's way of Catholicism was quite different to my mother's. Mm. I remember one Sunday morning being here and we were getting ready for going to Mass and Granny was outside and she came in and my mother said, Mother, you're not dressed, you're not ready for Mass. And my Granny looked at her, you know, with a kind of a frown and she said, God knows I'm busy. And she went off doing her own thing. And to her, it was very loose, whereas to Mother, to my mother, that would be a sin. Mm. But to Granny, it was like, well, God knows I'm busy. Do you know? Those older beliefs, are we talking about like Celtic mythology or is there a different belief system or practice? When you talk about Celtic, um, we had peoples before the Celts. Mm. And I believe that, you know, it all becomes intermingled. The thing about Ireland is that each people that came to Ireland came with their own beliefs, but those beliefs merged with the beliefs that were here. Mm. And so often the people coming in became more Irish than the Irish. Oh, and we still have that today. If you go to a lot of the pubs where they play the traditional music, you'll often find half the musicians could be Dutch, German. They really kind of absorb what is here and they bring their own gifts with them. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier being out in the fields and seeing and playing with the fairies. Yes. Now, and I say this with 100% respect, but if I were to do that at home and come inside and tell my friends or my loved ones, I was out in the fields with the fairies, they'd say, is he running a fever? Is there something <laughs> wrong with him? Like this this is so, at, you know, very least different to me. Um, what exactly are you, were you talking about when you say that? Well, for me, when I talk about the fairies, I'm talking about the little little light beings that fly very quickly um, because there are lots of different types of elementals and different people have different names for them. Um, for me, I would go out here and uh, there are underground tunnels in this under this hill that were um, made by the Celtic people, the first Celts that came over, which was about 265 BC. 
And then after that, we had continuous invasion of Celtic tribes. And a tribe could be the size, say, 200. It could be as big as 2,000. And so as each tribe came to Ireland, they fought the tribes that were here. The Celts were a fighting race. And so they would have these these, um, subterranes all over the land where they would hide the sick, the infirmed and the very young children. The others would fight. The women would fight as much as the men. And um, and so I used to go down into the tunnels under this hill and I used to play with the fairies. I'd see these little light beings and I would play with them. Now, my granny would actually take me out to talk to the fairies. We used to make bread and butter and sugar sandwiches and take them because she said they liked the sweetness, you know. Um, and we'd take them out and we'd leave them as gifts for the fairy folk. And if my granny was making bread that day, you always knew because she was scrubbing the cauldron because we cooked over the fire. You know, we didn't have a cooker. We didn't have water. We had rainwater and spring water from two fields over here. And so she'd be scrubbing the cauldron in the morning and you knew that was the day she was making the bread. Mm. And so she'd make the bread in the cauldron. And I don't know if you've seen in the shops, but the traditional soda bread is round with a cross in it. Yeah. Because that that was made in the cauldron, the bottom of the cauldron. Interesting. So when that would come out, and of course the smell, you know, you'd be desperate for it. But the first break of that bread would have to go out for the fairy folk. And while the bread was cooking, she'd put out some of the sour milk because otherwise the bread wouldn't rise. And so it was just a, a natural way of being, you know, that you leave gifts for the fairies, the recognition that we actually share this space mm. with those betwixt and between, with those within the unseen. And that's, so that's still very much uh, even like mainstream belief in Irish culture, right? Um, yes and no. Mm. Half of Ireland, you know, half of the people of Ireland live in and around Dublin. Yeah, okay. Um, so it'd be a bit like New York for you with the rest of America, do you know? So a lot of people there would probably think it's silly and childish and superstitious. But the further out you go, the more you realise that people have a respect for it. And there'd be very few people now that would, you know, go through a fairy ring or cut down a hawthorn tree because that's the fairy tree. What is a fairy ring? A fairy ring could be, it's a circle, so it could be one of the forts that you see oh. on the land. It could be a ring of flowers or a ring of mushrooms. You'll often drive past a field and the field will be empty except for perhaps a hawthorn bush in the middle. And the farmer knows better than to cut it. Because if you cut it, the fairies won't be happy. Your milk could dry up, the, the cows could dry up and not give milk and things of that nature. I have... A quote in here, because uh, I, I was looking at some websites and, and right here, fairy rings, it says, they do exist. Uh, and people in Ireland know that you do not mess with the fairies. That's right. And there's a saying, if you excuse it, mm. don't fuck with the fairies. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you know, no. You recognize that they're there and that we share this space with them, you know. Yeah, I was going, I, I had this earlier in my notes, but... I guess I had sort of assumed that uh, what we're talking about here, and and I read like uh, people also said like banshees, leprechauns, yeah. puka. I don't know if that's the, the right. puka. Yeah. Uh, and I was thinking like, are are they all benevolent, or are we also talking about like sharing a space with uh, spirits and entities that mean to to do harm? I don't believe they mean to do harm, mm. 
but they don't like to be messed with. Mm. You know, um, the puka, and actually just below me here, and you probably would have come through it if you were driving. Uh, I don't know where you're staying. We came from that direction. Oh, okay. Because we were coming up from uh, the cliffs. Oh, okay. So no, down below me in the valley there, that area is called Beaufort. Okay. And in Irish, Beaufort means home of the puka. What are puka? So pukas, um, they're they're creatures that follow families. So the most uh, well-known would be a rabbit, like a nine-foot rabbit with long ears, a white rabbit. Do you ever see the film, it was a 50s or 60s film, black and white, uh, where this man had a puka and his sister was trying to marry her daughter off. Do you remember that film? I'll have to look that up, James Stewart. Um, I know James Stewart. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's the film and um, and he had a puka. Whoa. Because the puka follows certain families. It it sounds to me like a uh, a similar almost belief system or or similar knowledge to a lot of traditional cultures, and uh, I'm wondering if these specific things that we're talking about, like fairies and puka, are specific to Ireland, or is there, you know. Do they exist in other places? I believe they do. They probably have other names. Mm. You know, um, the Aborigines, for example, one of their sacred symbols would be the spiral. It's one of our sacred symbols. Mm. You know, I do believe that the mass unconscious, you know, holds these energies. So, for example, um, the fairy folk... um, Pegasus, unicorns, whatever, dragons. Mm -hmm. Now, they believe in dragons all over the world. Somebody didn't go around the world telling those stories and making people believe them, but they're tuning in to this mass unconscious which holds that connection to that other realm. We've separated from that because we've become more technological. And the more and more technological we get, the more we disconnect from the reality of what's there. We're both history teachers. I have Leslie sitting next to me and your knowledge of this might be better than mine, but um, I believe that like when agriculture started springing up around the world, even on different continents, it happened in the same time period. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, like sort of, you know, alludes to either somebody teaching everybody in all those places at the time, which would be impossible, uh, well, maybe, uh, or some type of mass, con- mass yes. consciousness, yeah. yes. What they call the 51st, isn't it? The 51st uh, syndrome or something. When 51% get it, then Mm. everybody is able to experience it. It's like specific technologies, like you see irrigation systems. Sorry, specific technologies, like you see irrigation systems in Mesopotamia, and you see irrigation systems in Egypt, and you see irrigation systems like all in these early... China. Right, in in India and all of these early civilizations popping up at the same time pre-contact. Yeah. Yeah. So then would anybody have the ability to say see a fairy or like can they be taught to or do you need to have someone with that ability and knowledge? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I do uh, pilgrimages in Ireland of sacred sites and we do about four a year, um, occasionally five, you know. Um, I do two of my own and then groups will 
contact me or somebody who wants to bring a group will contact me and we'll arrange, you know, and, and organise a tour. Um, and I do take them to a couple of places where the veil is thin and some do have an experience of seeing fairy folk and having the experience. And for me, it's to do with ha- being open-hearted, mm. sitting down and just letting go, relaxing, relaxing, say, into the stone you're leaning against or the tree and becoming a part of the environment. So you're not thinking about where you're going tomorrow or do you need more diesel or what you're going to cook tonight or whatever, but you just become a part of the land, the landscape, because the DNA between us and a tree is a lot more similar than it's different. And you can breathe into the tree. You give the tree the oxygen it needs or the carbon dioxide it needs, the tree gives you the oxygen. So you can have this beautiful osmosis between yourself and a tree. And you can begin to feel that, to feel the presence of the tree there with you. And you just drop down, you drop down to your heart and you allow your heart to open. And you know, from birth, I truly believe we're all born with an open heart. And then the things that happen to us along the way tend to close us down. We get hurt, we carry pain, and we close in, we close in, we close in, and our ribs gradually can become a prison. Hmm. And then we're very careful about how much we let people in. Even people we love, we can can take years to really be that fully open and feel safe to do that. And yet when you sit in nature, That's the one thing that will connect you to nature. Just being. Just try to hold that a little closer to you. Sometimes I wonder if that's what we call like a child's imagination, right? It has a lot to do with what you're saying, this open heart. Yes. And the imagination is what we're calling it as adults, right? But maybe it really is this connection with, you know, other energies or beings when you have that imaginary friend or you're, you know... Yeah. acting out or playing and you are exploring even if it's just what adults just see as you know the backyard but you yeah. see it as something quite perhaps different perhaps we should just call it the magic nation the magic nation yeah i like that but i know it's i think it's yeah because magic does exist right but when you as you were saying you grow older and you start to have experiences yes whether they be positive or negative, and you start to, I guess, become grounded in what we call as our reality, which would be, you know, the more commercial world, uh, that starts to die off, right? You play less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't see it as grounded. I see it as getting stuck in, to be honest. For me, groundedness is really being here in all its realities, yeah, sorry, I'm just trying to get you. There you go. That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, I know it's, it's a work in time. It, it's the most. It's the most awkward way to have a conversation. Here, stick really something is. in your face. Really yeah, because I often tend to kind of move my hands around as well. I know, me too. <laughs> but when you sorry, when you're talking about being grounded, uh, and you were giving that example of breathing with the tree and, and yeah. experiencing that, and that's when you find people begin to open their heart and then are able to connect a little bit with this other realm. It. I think ties back to other belief systems, right? You think about Buddhism and um, reaching enlightenment. A lot of that has to do with, you know, becoming one and and understanding the interconnectedness, right? Not separating yourself out from your environment or from any of your surroundings. Yes. So I think like there is a, a larger 
global connection, even if it's grounded in a different culture. Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. Because like you were saying earlier, you know, all over the world, it's the same belief. And truth is simple. It's not complicated. It kind of harkens back to what we were saying before, too, when we were saying, like, why are people returning to more traditional ways of, of like, living, eating, beliefs? And I think we're really at our, our limit or our threshold for what we call civilization and technology. And, I mean, we, we went to Killarney National Park yesterday. Sort of just like you're talking about, we hiked up the red trail, like up the, the stone steps to the top. And the mountain is misting and it is, it's almost like you're standing in lungs and it's breathing around you and, and you're in it. And we have to do something like that just to like reset from like the hustle and bustle of, you know, a nine to five work life in, in a city that we live in. And yeah, it, I don't know. I think almost globally we've reached our limit for that. And I, I guess it goes one of two ways. It goes sort of like a peaceful way or it goes towards a more like dystopian future. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to sort of define what you do. Uh, you're, is the word Chavon? Chavon, yes. Okay. Can, can you just talk about uh, what that is and what that entails? Yes. And I talk about it from me. Cool. Because this is my, my story. Um, so for me, it is a balance between working in the different realms, in the realms of the... Um, I suppose that betwixt and between um, and the teachings that were shared with me come from different um, different places so there was my granny mm. and my granny was really my first teacher even though I didn't realise it at the time um, but showing me how to commune with the earth how to listen, how to hear the trees, how to connect with the stone beings and that the stone beings are the story keepers of our land. They're our ancient ones. They hold the stories, you know, and every now and then they will actually share them with you if you ask, you know, especially in sacred spaces. And then um, what we call the Tuaday, the Tuaday Danon, the people that were here before the Celts who are known as the gods and the goddesses of the land, um, so they came to me and shared things with me. The trees have shared things with me. Um, as a child, when I used to come back here, because the old house was here, um, the first thing I would do was run into this field and I would lie there and I would open my legs out and open my arms and just lie on the grass and I would breathe and I would wait. And gradually I'd become the field and then I'd become the hill. And then I could feel myself going all the way down into the valley and up into the mountains because there are mountains out there. You might be able to see them today because of the mist. And I'd feel my whole chest opening up and I would wait. And then she would come. This old, old woman, this old, old energy in the earth. She would come and she would talk to me. And I knew I was home. This was home. I was safe. And... And then when we had to leave at the end of the summer or after Christmas or whenever it was, I'd have to close in and I'd have to close down, which was very, very difficult. But she would share things with me. 
And so for me, growing up, it was very normal to hear these voices, to be aware of this other understanding. And so that's how I was taught. And being dyslexic, you can give me a book, but I can't tell you what it says. Mm. And even fictional books, I can go back and read them again a couple of years later. It's like I've never read them. It's wonderful, you know. Mm. So that's how I was taught. And um, and then, like I say, at 16, I woke up again. I became aware of spirit again. And by 18, I was starting to do clairvoyance without knowing that's what I was doing. Um, and it actually started in a pub with my friends. We'd finished school, you know, we'd gone out that night. And um, and this, I don't know, I started, for a joke, I thought, telling this guy uh, what his lines meant on his hand. And I thought I was just plumassing. I thought I was making it up, you know. I was, and he's going, that's so true, that's so true. <laughs> and then somebody else said, oh, do mine. And then somebody else, and I said, buy us a drink and I'll do it. You know? <laughs> so I ended up with all these drinks on the bar and of course my friends were delighted because they were knocking them back, you know. And I was telling people things like about his grandmother's sister in Scotland who had just got cancer and, do you know, it's like it was just coming through. And, um, and then I met a man, Owen Potts, who was a well-known medium and trance medium at the time. And he... Um, he put me in with a group to develop, called a development group through the spiritual church in England. And the first night I was there at the end of the evening, the woman Hilda came up to me and she said, why are you here? And I felt my heart starting to beat, you know, and I was kind of, I went back into that shyness of the, the school time. And I said, why? And she said, you shouldn't be here. You should be out working. You don't need this. And I said, I don't know what you mean. And she said, she pointed at this man and she said, tell me about him. And so I just started talking and she said, there you go. And I said, but doesn't everybody have that voice that they talk to? And of course, in the films, you know, in the 60s, they used to have often films where you had the good angel on one shoulder, mm. always the right shoulder, mm. and the bad angel on the left. And so I thought other people had these voices that they talked to, and they didn't. So I started as a clairvoyant. And then I started moving into different forms of healing. I always wanted to come back and live in Ireland. <clears throat> and my focus was to come back at 16 and to live with my granny and to just assist my granny and to work here. And I actually had my first uh, proposal at 16 here. And um, I was out lying on the land. I was about 15 at the time. And this old woman, the energy... She, I used to call her she. She used to come and she came to me and she said, you cannot come back here. You must go and you must learn. And it just broke my heart. It broke my heart. I just didn't know what to do with myself, do you know? So I was going to become a nurse and then I had an operation on my foot at 17 in the hospital that I had applied to to do nursing, coincidentally. And, um, and after the operation, they said, <clears throat> that was one of the things I could never do. I could never be on my feet all day long after that operation. Mm. And I didn't know what to do. And I was doing clairvoyance and, you know, that was developing. So over the years, gradually I was being drawn back and back again to Ireland. 
And of course, when I started having my own children, first thing I wanted to do was bring them back. Granny was still alive when my first two were little. And gradually I started moving back. And then I was at um, a place in America with some Native American people. And there were Hopis. And, um, and this little woman came up to me. She was about 55, maybe 60, I don't know at the time. But she was about the same size as my granny. My granny was four foot two, so she might have been just a little bigger than granny. And she came over to me and she poked me in the chest. And she said to me, what are you doing here? You carry your people's stories. You carry your people's knowledge. You need to go home. And I was just so struck by it. And I thought, she's absolutely right. I should be at home. And I started coming back and I came back and each time I came back, the trees would share things with me and the stones would share things with me. And Granny died. Granny had gone by that point, you know, but I still carried it in my bones, in my joints. And sometimes when the information would come through, I didn't know if it was a memory of what I'd been told, like from Granny, or was it an ancestral memory Mm. coming through my... Our bones hold our stories, you know, our DNA, our blood carries our stories. It carries the stories of our people. And after a while, it didn't matter. It didn't matter because what was coming through was relevant and it was truth and it was working. And so I began to access it more and more. And the trees took me down through the roots and showed me how strong they were because of their roots and how, how often people don't even recognize the roots of a tree. And as high, as wide as the tree grows is as deep and wide are their roots. They are a reflection of each other. And the eye was just like the tree. All of us are like the tree. And we too have roots and our roots are our ancestors. Hmm. I'm held by two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, all the way down, all the way through. And they are my roots. And they said to me, how can you know each other? How can you know yourself if you do not know your roots? Who are you? And I began to realize, gosh, I need to know this. So they showed me, come, come. Come. So I went into the tree and I went down through the roots to my own roots to meet my own ancestors. And this was the lower world. And then the trunk of the tree, what holds us here, is how we are now. And just like I'm growing on and I'm getting lines and I'm getting nobbles on my body, just like the trunk of a tree does as it grows on. You know, we're so much more similar. And so this is the middle world. This is how we operate in the here and now. And why are we here? Why are we here as souls? What have we chosen? How do we create? How do we take responsibility? How do we respond rather than react? How do we bear witness rather than taking it personally? You know, things of that nature. And then the upper world was the branches. I went up into the branches and there was spirit. And of course, I had this access to spirit, but I had never gone down. I'd never gone in. And therefore, I hadn't dealt with certain emotional problems, difficulties, pains that I carried. 
And then I realized by accessing my ancestors that I carried ancestral patterns, not just in my build and in my coloring, but I carried patterns of my ancestors. And I needed to clear those patterns and my soul had chosen to take that on because that was my contract with the two souls that gifted me life. They would give me life and I would clear certain patterns in the ancestry. And by clearing those patterns, they would no longer pass on to my children, my grandchildren, to my nephews and nieces. And this is how we grow. And how can we be all that we are meant to be in the here and now if we're still held by the patterns of our ancestors? Hmm. So the more we clear those patterns, the more we are clearing the roots that no longer serve us, the roots that actually pull and drain us. And then the roots that do hold us that do sustain us are stronger and it's easier to access them. So I began to work with that. I began to work with that for myself. And at the time I was living in community. And of course, everything that was coming through, I was sharing in the community and we were all working with that. And, um, and at the same time, I was becoming more, I'm a feminist. And I was becoming more and more aware of certain aspects of myself as a woman that wasn't coming forth, that wasn't flowing forth. I mean, from the moment the doctor said to my mother, congratulations, Mrs. Murphy, it's a girl. I was being trained to be a wife and a mother. Do you know? And um, so I'm beginning to feel into that. So we started a woman's group in the community. I was about 34, I suppose, at the time. And through having the woman's group, it was the first time I had a circle. I didn't have the circle, we had the circle. It's the first time I was sitting in circle where I was being held, where I could be supported because I'd spent my life supporting, mm. you know, even at home because my mother had been very, very ill after the last birth and I kind of, I was nine and I took over the cooking and the cleaning and the shopping and then, you know, it took a long time for my mother to be back on her feet. And by the time she was, I was doing this with her now. You know, she didn't take over, but we, I was helping her with all of that. So I was always giving and supporting. And suddenly I was sitting in a circle of women who were becoming my sisters. And so I began to explore that more. And I began to be drawn into that and into the sacredness of it and into the sacredness of sisterhood and very much moving through rituals and rites of passage and reclaiming that and reclaiming the aspects of myself as a woman. I'm very gentle, I'm very kind, I'm very powerful, I can be ferocious. You know, all the different aspects that are there and giving them permission to be there, giving them permission to be all that I am and knowing how to work with that. So if I'm angry, I'm not going to lash out. But I recognize, oh, that's a trigger. That's press my button. And I might have the right to be angry, that that is not acceptable. And there are other times when I can say, oh, that's interesting. I still react to that. And I know how to work with it. And so the way at the Shevan is a balance of both. Hmm. It's working with the three realms. And it's also bringing forth the richness of the feminine, the sovereignty of it. I'm going to ask you a very loaded question. So if the answer is, I don't know, that's, that's totally cool. Uh, 
often when, when we're traveling, like we, we travel for long periods of time and we fully, we, we try to fully immerse ourselves in the places that we are. So honestly, we're not going online. We're not quite paying attention to world events while we're traveling. Uh, but we are aware of the fact that since we've been on the road uh, in the States, is the States now have, uh, or the Supreme Court has decided that the States now have the autonomy to decide what a woman gets to do with her body. And hearing the things that you're saying, to me, it sounds like voting hasn't worked. Uh, trying to educate very conservative thinkers hasn't worked. To me, like, I don't know, maybe the only thing left is to kick down the door. Like, it, to me, it sounds like <laughs> like maybe violence is the answer. Um, it, through your work, do you have any sort of insight into, like, what do we do now? Yeah, yeah. It is shocking. It's it's beyond shocking, you know. And one of the things I'm very grateful for here in Ireland is that we are becoming more liberal, mm. while so many countries are becoming more conservative. It's frightening and it's unacceptable. What's happening to women is unacceptable. The fear of a woman's womb is unacceptable. We have the ability to bring forth another soul. We are connected to spirit because we can bring forth another soul. No matter what happens, a man cannot do that. But the fear of that is just, it's gone beyond it. And I think of my daughters and my granddaughters, you know, who are both in their tw early 20s now. You know, what's going to happen for them? So yesterday and Saturday I was teaching. It's an apprentice group and we're in the second year and we're doing that via Zoom because the women are based from the West Coast across to Zurich. So, you know, we have a, a stream of, from different areas. And so yesterday we did a ritual around it. Oh. Um, to use all the tools we have, to use our voice, but also to use our inner tools. So we came together and we did ritual. And something um, I work with in the middle world, what holds the middle world for me is what we call the Celtic wheel or the turning of the wheel, the wheel of the year. Hmm. And in our Irish tradition, the four main points look like an X. Um, so it's Samhain, Imbolc, Bealtaine and Lunasa. And then inside that we have four lesser points, which are the solstices and the equinoxes. And we have deities in my teachings we have the deities on each of those points and each of those points is a female deity and so we called onto them we asked them to work with us we didn't invoke i don't invoke energies i invite them and for me there's a big difference so we called upon them and we asked them to come and to assist us with this work and to create these pillars of light across the world and each of them holds their own gifts. For example, Chiltu, the gentle mother. That many women need holding. They're fearful, they're worried, they're frightened. You know, um, many women are very angry and want to be out there, you know. And so Maeve is the warrior queen. And so there's different aspects that are there. And so we called upon them all to hold this space and we drummed and we rattled we chanted, we held space, and we created that so that each day we can focus on that energy and keep feeding into it to assist the women whichever way the women are going to go. Mm. And there's no judgment on it. You know, there's no judgment. 
on what the women are going to do. Because it is so unacceptable. It's so beyond the beyond to even believe it. I mean, up until the mid-1800s, it was legal in America. (sighs) You know. Yeah. You can't even go there because this would be a whole other conversation. Okay. You know. Uh, It's a totally different subject, but I was thinking about, you talked about the pilgrimages. Yes. Uh, Where are the sites that you go to and are are there sites here that like anyone can access in Ireland? Yes. Um, No matter how long you stay in Ireland, I don't (laughs) think you'll ever reach all of them. (laughs) You know, this island holds up to 65% of all of Europe's megalithic sites. I did not know that. Wow. And if you think of the tiny country. Yeah. You know, so everywhere, they're everywhere. And the more people try to build new roads or dig into things, the more they find. And to the point where the government got so tired of it a few years ago, they were building a new road, a new motorway up by Tara. And there were archaeologists at that time digging and they found ancient sites there. And the government just pulled them out and made that road they were just tired of finding places so no matter where you go you'll find places where people have gone for ritual and then have gone for celebrations things of that nature and then there are specific places that would resonate even stronger so for example in Kerry we have the Paps I don't know if you heard about the Paps they're outside Killarney you take the road towards Rathmore and it, you would need a clear day to see them. They are two mountains shaped like breasts. They have cairns on top, which are over 5,000 years old. So they're like nipples. Oh. And people have come there for over 4,500 years continuously. It's the oldest place of pilgrimage to the Great Mother throughout Europe. I had no idea. Yeah. And so beneath the Paps, if you're on the Rathmore Road, there's a place called the City. And it is a three-ringed fort. And when the Tuhadidanum were here um, and the first Celts came and they had their battle, after the battle and the Celts eventually won the battle, the four great cities of the Tuhaday lifted up out of this earth and moved into another realm. And so that is the space of one of the cities. And that's why it's called the city. And in the centre, in the inner ring, there is a statue of Mary with the baby Jesus. And so even now the Catholics will go there. Oh, wow. Yeah, and do ritual. They will go the 1st of May. And we (laughs) uh, will go the 31st of April because it's Bieltona. It's one of the points on our wheel, Bieltona. And and May itself is called Bieltona in Irish. Um, But for over four and a half thousand years, it's the oldest place of pilgrimage of the Great Mother throughout Europe. And there's a a stored energy? Yes. Yes. Mm. Well, can you imagine thousands going every year Mm. praying? That energy is being held. Mm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I wrote down here, and maybe I'm mispronouncing, but Imrama. The Iram, yes, the Irama, yeah. Can can you tell me about that? Because it it sounded to me very similar to to a belief in uh, Egyptian mythology. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, And the Iram 
is a journey that you go on that you never come back the same. And really, it's like consciousness. Once you wake up, you can never go back to sleep. Once you realize what's happening, you can never close down to that. You might not want to know, but you can never go back. And that's what Niram is. It's a journey that you never come back the same. So is that essentially then part of your teaching that you're, you're taking someone down the path of enlightenment and awakening? Yes. Not taking them. Um, hmm. I suppose we're showing them a path and it's up to themselves to take that path. Interesting. Maybe maybe I misunderstood then. I was thinking because uh, sort of the, the passing through the field of, of reeds in in Egypt is, is the sort of journey to the afterlife that, that everybody does. Um, so maybe, I don't know, maybe they don't connect, but <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah I'm, I might've read something different, but I thought, I thought it had something to do with like almost like a ship journey. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the uh, most traditional Iram is building a karak, which is a, a, a traditional boat. Oh, okay. And then you go out in the boat. So the story would be Bran and Bran. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful story. But it's a long story, you know. So he went out in the boat with his branch and this, uh, the silver branch and the beautiful red apple hanging from it um, that the uh, woman from Day had given him. And he, he went out and found Tiananog. Tiananog would be the land of Forever Young. And it was known as the land of the Day Danon. And the Day believed that when uh, they died... Their spirit became part of the earth. Mm. It became part of the songs of the birds, part of the colour of the, the, the flowers, you know, the wind that blows against your face. Um, and their souls would go to Tiananog to await rebirth. It's the land of forever summer. And then their physical body broke down into the earth as ours would, whether, you know, you go down as ash or whether you go down in bones mm. and skin. But that breaks down and that becomes part of the earth. So, you know, you end up drinking the waters that come from the earth. You end up eating the vegetables that come from the earth. And that's all your ancestors, mm. you know. So Tiananog is something that every Irish person would know about. Okay. So Bran went with his friends to Tiananog and they were there for three days and three nights and they feasted and made love to beautiful women and danced and sang. And then one of the boys wanted to come back. He was worried about his mother because his mother was a widow and he was worried about her and the younger boys. And, um, and Bran's lover said to him, sure, you can never go back once you're here. You've eaten of our food and drank of our wines. You can never go back. But they wouldn't listen. And they came back in their curragh. And as they came back into the bay, they saw people on the bay, on the land, on the sand there, that they'd never seen before. And they were dressed differently. And they couldn't, who are these people in our bay? They could be taking our cockles and our mussels. You know, who are they? And one of the boys got so upset, he jumped out of the curragh and waded through onto the beach and the people were looking out of this curragh and these boys you know shouting at them and as he fell onto the sand his body got older and older and crumbled into nothing into ash you know and everybody is shocked the people standing on the beach and the boys in the curragh and the people looked at them and they said who are you who are you that this would happen what magic are you carrying 
And Bran stood up and he said, I am Bran, son of Fergal. And the people just looked and this young boy who was very tall stepped forward and he said, I heard of Bran in our family. He said, but that was 300 years ago. He disappeared. And so for every day at Tiernan Oak, it was 100 years here. And so the boys told them their story, turned the curragh around and went again. You know, you're talking about a lot of beautiful ideas and you talked about how Ireland is becoming more progressive, which even I think we've seen in, in talking to people, uh, even young people, uh, there's a lot of Irish who seem to be understanding of what's happening in, in politics and society. We even had a conversation with someone about like, petrol and you shouldn't go to Circle K because they were upcharging people. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then we talked about something very ugly happening in the States. And there have been these two forces for a very long time that are meeting each other. And one is towards sort of like enlightenment and love and togetherness. And I don't even know what the other one is. Like, it, it, it's sort of strange, I think, in, in 2022 to, to feel like we're moving backwards in the States and to see maybe the, the the forces of, of good losing. Um, and so I, I've asked many guests on the podcast this before, but do you, do you feel hopeful for the future? Yes. When you say we talked about ideas, um, I don't see them as ideas. Mm. To me, an idea is out there. It's, it's somewhere, it's nebulous. You know, you need to pull it in. To me, this is part of another reality. Mm that we're not necessarily as connected into as we once were and, and perhaps we should be to bring more realisation and, and recognition, respect really even, to each other and to everything that lives on our planet, whether we see it or not. Um, I have something, I don't know if you, you've seen it, it's on YouTube, called The Earth Dreams. Mm -mm. And the Earth gifted me that dream here in the field in the mid-90s, and every group I've ever worked with, I share that. Now I know this is why I'm here. I know that more than anything else that I do, the most important thing for me right now is to focus on that dream. It's a dream where the skies are blue, the sea is clean. It's a dream where children can run happy and safe, where the elders are held and loved and respected, where hands are open across continents, where we are working together. I truly believe we are here to move from this independence that we've been fed, which is a part of the illusion mm. to keep us tied in, politically, economically and religiously, to interdependency where we consciously choose to work together. And I believe that everything that is not working right has to break down. And America wasn't working right. And it's built upon slavery. It's built upon all these hidden things and collusions and certain corporations and people holding power and manipulating thousands without realising it. And you can't build on that. Mm. How can you build on that? What will grow out of that? What, what beauty would that flower be? Mm. So it has to be broken into. 
Just like you have to break into a carbuncle or a boil to bring out the poison. Mm. It has to break through. And I truly believe that the earth is going to heal, that she is coming again. She is being reborn. She's being reborn and we have to dream her now. We have to dream what this earth will be like. We are the midwives. We are the custodians. And I truly believe we need to dream her. Mm. And our dreams, we might never see them. I won't ever see them. But that's not what's important. Spirit says, we are the seeds of the seeds of the seeds. And what grows from us is none of our business. And that this dream will manifest. It might be my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren that will benefit from that. But I dream that dream every day now. That dream is there, it's in my consciousness, it's in my bones, it's in my pumping of my blood. That dream is there. And I hold that dream and I'm not the only person. People all around the world are dreaming this dream. And this dream, you know, when I first did my very first workshop, it was in the early 20s, we'd had the march against um, the American... Um, uh, about Vietnam mm. um, in London, etc. And I offered, a, it was just an afternoon, working on peace. Let us visualise peace. Let us be at peace. Let us visualise peace. And we came together, there were about seven people. And I realised that they could visualise world war, but they couldn't visualise peace. So then I began to move it back from peace in the earth to peace in their country. Couldn't they couldn't visualize it. They couldn't feel it. So then I moved back, peace in the community. No, I couldn't go there. Peace in the family. Well, that brought up so much <laughs> stuff. I couldn't believe it. Peace within themselves. And yet they could visualize war. And I said, what are you feeding? What are you feeding? This was 50 years ago. What are you feeding? Because thoughts are electromagnetic energy. They're atoms of energy going out. What are you putting your energy into? I'm thinking back to what you were talking about kids before. I ended the year uh, in, in history class on a unit on the Viet... Well, it's Cold War, but we did uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And the, the kids looking back and they're like, this makes no sense. Like our involvement in this, what we did in this, this makes no sense. And that may sound like a simplified view, but it's it's a correct view. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When my uh, second daughter was about six, uh, we were coming home from school and she was saying about her friend, a little boy whose uh, father had gone back, and I can't remember what country it was now, it was a country near India, to collect his grandmother because there was a war there. And she said to me, what's the war about, mummy? And I said, oh, well, they're fighting. There's two different religions and they're fighting about God. And she says, what do you mean they're fighting about God? And I said, well, they have two different beliefs about God. And she was in the back of the car and I'm driving and she starts laughing. And she says, mummy, I don't believe you. How can they fight about God? No one's met God. <laughs> and I thought from the mouth of a child. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful point. <laughs> from the mouth of a child. We're at about an hour, but before I let you go, uh, for anyone traveling to Ireland, um, what is something that they really need? I know there's, it, the, the choices are vast, but 
something they really need to do or see or, or eat uh, to truly get an Irish experience here? If they are coming back to Ireland, and what I mean by that is if they are blood of the blood, no matter how many generations back, to be aware that they're bringing their ancestors home. Hmm. Because so many left, not because they wanted to, but because they had to. And they really struggled to survive. I mean, they went through things we will never have to go through. Blessed be, please the goddess. And to be aware that when they come back, to go somewhere, whether it's somewhere they think their ancestors came from or know their ancestors came from, and to just lie on the ground or sit on the ground and just say, you're home. Hmm. You're home. Just let that move through them. Because I've had so many people who come back and fall to the ground and cry and they don't know why they're crying and they get so self-conscious. And I said, it's because you're bringing your ancestors home. You've carried this sadness. You've carried this ache. You've carried this feeling. And this has gone back maybe five, six generations. And it's okay because you've brought them home now. You can plant a tree here now, you know, in honour of your ancestors, in honour of your own family. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, through the heritage. Yeah, you can plant a tree in Ireland. You could do that. They could do that in honour of their ancestors. They could carry some seeds and put them down in the ground somewhere in honour of their ancestors. Mm. Why not? Yeah. You know? and, um, and when they come back, don't rush through places. Don't get on a bus and go from A to B to C to D and then go and have dinner at night and get up the next day and go off again. Stop. Stop a while. Ask permission to be on the land. Ask permission to connect with the stone. Ask permission of the tree to lean against it. Stop doing. And just let yourself be. And it's only when you begin to slow down and let yourself be that you're really begin to feel that you are here. Otherwise, you're just passing through. You might as well watch it on TV. You need to stop. You need to be. To eat, well, if you eat meat, you should have cabbage and bacon. That's the traditional dinner that they would have. I'm not a meat eater. I, haven't, um, I didn't grow up eating red meat. It just wasn't my thing. And then I stopped eating white meat in my early 20s. Um, but they would have cabbage and bacon and potatoes. So I used to have the cabbage and the potatoes, you know, as a child. But cabbage and potatoes, Irish stew, um, beef and Guinness pie, all those sort of things. And Irish coffee. A Guinness, for goodness sake. Guinness mm. used to be medicine. <laughs> I knew two women that had it on prescription. Really? One, one, because she lost too much blood giving birth. So she had prescription for a month of a bottle of Guinness a day. And another woman had the prescription because she'd had jaundice. She had it for six weeks, a bottle a day. There's no sugar. There's no additives, no preservatives. There's less calories mm. than in lager. And Guinness literally is good for you. They've proved it. Yeah. Well, there you go. The so more reason to drink Guinness. <laughs> you have to have a Guinness. Yeah, and there's no Guinness like Irish Guinness. I mean, mm. no matter where you go in the world, it doesn't taste like the Irish Guinness. And for those who find it heavy, then uh, the Irish coffee. My personal thing is Calypso coffee. I like it uh, without the cream. So it's uh, black coffee and Tia Maria, shot of Tia Maria. That's my favourite. Yeah. I like it. And, and, and what you said about travel to here, I think, is like a perfect travel motto 
for everywhere you go. Yeah. Um, sort of low and slow instead of uh, just rushing through a place. We rushed around a lot today. <laughs> so I'm uh, being a bit of a hypocrite, but um, yeah, it's even nice to, to just sit here with you in, yeah. in this setting. And, and say please and say thank you, mm. especially in the south of Ireland. You know, people are very respectful mm. and they don't like this like this to, you know, to a waitress or a waiter. And they like, you know, thank you, please. It's, it's just respectful. You'll notice people here are more conscious in general. They look at you in the eye, you know. On the roads too, we're from New York, so it's quite yeah, different, but yeah. people are very polite on the roads. Exactly. Yeah. And so just being aware of, of saying thank you, mm. having gratitude, having gratitude for being here, having gratitude to the land for holding us. Yeah. I love it. Uh, is your website the best place to go if people want to go Tis, to... Yes, okay. I do a monthly vlog. Oh, great. And, you know, for years people kept asking me to teach online and I kept putting it off. I thought I'll never be able to do it online because of COVID mm. and the pandemic. I had to go online because financially I, I had to make money, you know. Um, I'm actually good at it <laughs> <laughs> and I can really do the shamanic healing on it. And it's, I'm amazed by it myself. I think, wow, that's incredible, you know, but I can actually go through and I can journey into their energy field and do the work that I need to do with them, you know, and it is with them. It's not for them. There's mm. a big difference. Um, and I have people from Australia that I've worked with and uh, people from the West Coast. So it is amazing, you know. Yeah, so CelticSoulJourneys.com, Journeys with a Y-S, yeah. And I will link to that in any player that anyone is listening to this in. Um, thank you. This, is, this has been really wonderful. It's awesome to, to get to learn from you and hopefully we can set you know, more people down the path. So thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. And can I also ask that you put up about the Earth Stream, if you could put the connection to that so that people can also click onto that. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Because the more people that dream it, the more we bring it into reality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you can expect to see that in the player thank as well. Thank you. Cool. Cheers. All right, Voyagers, that is a wrap on episode 272 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Stay tuned because there will be more coming shortly. I think I'm recording in like three days in Galway. So maybe not too long after you listen to this one, you will hear a conversation that I'm going to have with a, with a chef out there. And then who knows what's going to happen after that. Uh, going to some really amazing countries. Hopefully we'll record some cool conversations. I've been writing a lot and I've had a number of pieces published to different magazines. I think most recently I've had three. So if you tune, uh, if you just follow my Instagram, um, you can you can find access to all those things. I I post them. I used to read them on here in the past, but I don't really think I'm going to do that anymore. So you can just check them out if you're interested in in those. I also wanted to say hello to Stefan, who's originally from Dubrovnik in Croatia and is now here in where was he? I think Sneem in uh, in part of the, uh, the the Ring of Kerry. A cool little town on a river, uh, really peaceful. But uh, he was working at a bakery, and I want to say hey to you, and I hope to see you back in New York. All right, Voyagers, signing off for now. 
I would like to say thank you one more time. Always thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Appreciate you all. So happy to be back on the road. I will catch you very soon. Please, please, please take care of each other.